the Inspector General's report into war crimes was starting to spool up then in 2014. The guys were sort of wondering what they were going to do for the rest of their lives. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, was letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things went south really bad. You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an ego attached to being a gunfighter. Being around big, tall trees, thick shrubbery, potentially connecting to other moments in his life during battles. The story of transformation is powerful. Ben McKelvey is a prolific freelance writer and editor. He has been embedded with the Australian Defence Force in East Timor and Iraq, and has worked independently in Iran and Afghanistan. In 2017, he wrote the authorised posthumous biography, The Commando, The Life and Death of Cameron Baird, VCMG. His new book, Mosul, Australia's Secret War Inside the ISIS Caliphate, is out now, published by Hachette. This is my conversation with Ben about his new book, the untold story of the battle for Mosul, and the secret involvement of Australians on both sides of the war. Ben McKelvey, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having me. Before we dive into the book itself, Ben, I'm interested a bit in your background and involvement in this story and how the book came into being. Well, I guess it started with the commando, but uh, even before that, um, I was having some preliminary conversations with Hachette, who's the publisher that's published uh, five of my six books, and we were talking about things that we could potentially do. I had worked previously for Ralph magazine and one of my jobs at Ralph was to go and do the barrier test at Singleton, uh, the special forces barrier test, because they were just starting the direct entry scheme into, uh, into the special forces. So I had done that and I really didn't know that much about, about the Australian special forces previously, but it had piqued my interest, especially once they started deploying to Afghanistan. The second commando regiment was something that I was really interested in. And I was talking to my contact at, uh, at Hachette, my publisher, Vanessa, and we were saying, oh, you know, at some point it'd be great to do a story about, to write a book about this, uh, the second commando regiment. And then uh, when Doug and Kay Baird were looking to write uh, Cameron's story, they came to a number of publishers and they came to Hachette and I met with Doug and Kay and, and that's how it all started. And then when I was working on the commando, I maintained a, a sort of a number of relationships with the people that I had worked with on that book. And then that's how this story came to me. Telling the stories of Australian forces, whether it's commandos or anywhere else in Afghanistan and Iraq from that 2002 to 14 period, that's coming out more and more between podcasts, books, those stories are getting gradually told more, but that sort of post-2014 and post-end of Operation Slipper, those stories are far less known. So how did Ian Turner's story come to your attention? Well, Ian was someone that I interviewed a couple of times for the commando. And then after I had done those interviews, he contacted me when he was uh, in hospital having treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder and alcohol and addiction issues. And we talked a little bit about the things that we had spoken about previously in the interviews for the commando. We talked about other bits and pieces. He was quite forthcoming when he was talking about 
PTSD, which was, which was interesting to me because, and I'm sure that you found this with some of your reporting as well, is that it's something that's, that's quite reluctant, uh, reluctantly spoken of for lots of the guys. I completely understand that as well. But when I had heard that Ian had taken his own life, it did hit me and as it hit uh, a lot of people. Afterwards, Ian's wife, Jo, who works at Special Operations Command, got in contact with me and she wanted to talk about the interactions that I'd had with Ian previously. And this was years ago. And, you know, I sort of told her about the things that we had had spoken about. PTSD and the mental anguish that, that Ian had been suffering was something that I was professionally interested in. You know, I'd worked with a former child soldier called Denga Dutt in a book called uh, Songs for War Boy. And there are elements of PTSD in that story as well. I'd worked previously also with Mark Hunt, the UFC fighter, who had suffered quite badly at the hands of a, a rapist and abusive father. And it was, you know, something that Mark and I had spoken a lot about. And when I spoke to Joe, I was like, I really at some point would love to tell this story. And when Ian had contacted me, he'd just come back from operations in uh, Op Opera in Iraq. And as you said, that's something that's, that's not particularly well known, that part of the defence story. And it was something that was sort of bubbling in the back of my mind until one of the operators, someone who's crucially involved in phase zero operations, which was inserting into Iraq in areas where Islamic State was in predominant control. And then he was also involved in the strike cell in Mosul, which um, was an integral part of the battle there, in, which was you know a monumental battle. So we sat down and he started telling his story. And I was like, oh, I wonder if I could do a sort of multifaceted story, a multi-narrative story with the stuff that was happening on the ground with the phase zero stuff and Mosul, and then also the training mission, which Ian was involved in. And then he was also involved in operations in Al Takadam, which is another air base in Anbar, which, uh, which was where Islamic State had a, um, had a large amount of control. And then also telling the story of the Australian jihadi. So these are the three narratives that I pitched. That's what's ended up being the book. We will come back to Ian Turner's story and the commandos. This book, as you've alluded to, it tells the story of coalition soldiers and jihadists. So let's look first at some of the ISIS fighters. The three most infamous Australian ISIS fighters are detailed in this book. Without giving too much away from the book itself, how do these Sydney-siders find themselves wrapped up in violent jihad in Iraq and Syria? Long story short, I would suggest potentially ego is the, the primary concern. The interesting thing about these guys is some of them had spent a little bit of time in Lebanon, but they were Australians, you know, they were people who had spent pretty much their entire lives here in Sydney. They, in some way or another, had sort of become marginalised and become disenfranchised. And if you sort of look at the jihadi story, it is true that you can look at Islamic State as a cult. The way that these people are enveloped into the jihadi milieu is sort of the same way that you would bring someone to a cult. Mental health is something that pops up over and over again with some of the guys who joined Islamic State. Two things that are notable are that this is very much a sectarian story. The guys who went and joined Islamic State, they hated the Shia more than they hated anyone else. You know, Islamic State is a Sunni organisation. And they were also involved in organised crime here in Sydney to a certain extent. Some of them were heavily involved and some of them were, were not as involved, but Khalid Sharouf was deep in the criminal menu here in Sydney. And the book sort of suggests that part of the reason that he went over to fight for Islamic State was because he was running away from people who were trying to kill him here in Sydney. It is a pretty complex and pretty interesting story, the jihadi story. It is because it's confronting to think that someone raised in Australia, in our own backyards, are then fighting on the other side, as it were, because the whole concept of ISIS and all that feels so far away. It's the Middle East, it's far away, it's something that's on the news, but we have people over there, not just in uniform, who are involved, but 
if we are not watching carefully after the marginalized sectors of our community, you don't know what's going to slip between the cracks and what hate that's going to breed. No, that's right. And the assumption is that it was something that was just happening over there and it wasn't happening over here. And then we sort of went over and the fight happened over there. But the Sunni and Shia schism manifests itself here in Sydney as well. There's a couple of instances that are detailed in the book of Australian jihadis, Sunni jihadis, shaking down Shia businesses. Some of the people that I was talking to, they were basically saying that the Hyde Park riots were organised by some criminals, some sectarian criminals, who organised that to show the community in Sydney, in southwest Sydney, that they are the predominant gang. It wasn't about outrage over that movie. It was sort of ostensibly the reason why that was happening. It was because they wanted to get into the press. They wanted to show that they were God's warriors, you know, and they wanted to be as vicious as possible. And I think, as is quite often the case, what precedes the violence is the talk, the big talk, you know, we will behead those who insult Islam, all that sort of stuff. And then at some point, these guys sort of push each other to the point where they're like, oh, well, we should do something about that. You know, are we just bullshitters or are we actually going to do something? And that's where that's where some of the terrorist plots actually came from. Because it's not some angry individuals sort of cosplaying at war or extremism. Some go over there, they end up in the conflict, and it ultimately leads to the Aussie Prime Minister of the day, Tony Abbott at the time, to personally approve a kill order on an Australian citizen with no due process and that's surely an unprecedented move. Yeah, I don't know whether it's a kill order, but um, there were strikes against Australians. And I think that that was probably part of the coalition machinery. That's the most sensitive part of the operation. And that's not something that the special forces teams were involved in. They had been told that they weren't allowed to prejudicially target Australians. If Australians were killed incidentally in the, in the war fighting, then that was okay. But uh, the job wasn't to find and hunt and kill Australians. But that did happen, but that happened because of necessity. There were a number of imminent attacks here in Australia. There were plans to try and commit mass atrocity attacks here. And that was a response to the Australian Special Forces being over there and the planes being over there, which is something that, uh, you know, the government said at the time that the two things were unrelated. But it's quite obvious that the Islamic State superiors of the Australian fighters, they were telling the Australians that they had to organise these attacks because they wanted to try and either give a response or to try and stop the bombing and, and the Australian involvement, the coalition involvement over there, especially in Iraq. Well, let's turn to the role of Australian Special Forces. It was, let's just say, not well publicised, but the Australian 2nd Commander Regiment did have a pivotal role in the Battle of Mosul, the battle to take the last IS Caliphate stronghold in Iraq. How does your book explore this, what is an extraordinary engagement by any military metrics and also very recent history? The Battle of Mosul actually only represents perhaps the last quarter of the book because I really wanted to give an understanding as to how we got to this point. And so the book goes all the way back even to Afghanistan. The Second Commando Regiment would not have been tasked with this job or the guys who ended up going in the Mosul strike zone and the guys who were involved in these operations would not have done that but for the fact that they were so heavily involved in Afghanistan and they were incorporated into the American systems and almost ended up becoming a modular sort of thing. The Australians were so integrated into the war fighting systems, the US war fighting systems, that they could basically plug and play in a place like Mosul. That's evident in the fact that when the Australians did set up their, um, their little command centre and then their strike cell in Bartella and then later at uh, TAA Wyvern, they were alternating with two Navy SEALs, the SEAL teams. So it was the Australians one day in command of this strike cell and then it'd be, uh, and then it'd be the Australians, the Australians and the Navy SEALs. The battle is detailed as the Islamic State Caliphate sort of started to lose a foothold, but uh, everything in the lead up is there as well. And um, something that's represented in the book and something that was important to be represented in the book is the relationship that the Australians had with the Iraqi CTS. 
So the Iraqi CTS or ISOF or the, the Golden Division, they, there's lots of different names, were sort of one of the success stories to come out of Operation Okra because part of the problem, part of the reason why Islamic State had managed to take such a foothold in Iraq was because there wasn't a good federalised fighting force that could resist them. You know, it's, it's well publicised about, uh, you know, how all the Iraqi warfighters just dropped their guns and left their Humvees and left their tanks and fled after Mosul and Islamic State ended up with this huge cache of weapons and materials. But with the help of the Australians and other coalition partners, they managed to build up this Iraqi CTS force. And then that CTS force managed to take back door-to-door Mosul with huge, huge casualties. So as it's detailed in the book, the Australians were not only working as a partner force with the CTS, they were actually rushing into casualty collection points when there were car bombs and things like that. And all of the Australian operators ended up doing surgeries, ended up saving lives and not being able to save lives of these CTS guys. So there was this camaraderie, this incredible camaraderie. And the CTS guys have since come to Sydney, hung out after the battle with the Australians. Also, the scale of the action they're involved in, I've heard it said that we haven't seen a level of urban warfare that massive since Stalingrad in World War II. It was that Mm. level of fighting, which we just haven't really seen this century or in the last however many decades, because the style of warfare has changed since the Second World War quite dramatically. It's also a testament to the enemy that they were fighting as well. There were some fighters, some Islamic State fighters who were going to try and escape and they uh, punched out through to Talafar and then to Syria. But there was a large contingent of Islamic State jihadi, thousands, that decided that they were going to entrench themselves into Mosul and just try and basically pull the city down upon them. So there were lots of buildings, you know, most famously the al Nuri Mosque had been rigged for detonation. It was destroyed almost like at the end of a chess game when you would turn over the king. It was a thing called, I can't remember the German term, but it's a cauldron battle. Islamic State was completely encircled, but they had decided that they were going to fight to the death anyway. So the battle went on for a very long time with a lot of casualties on both sides and then also from civilians because they were just going to keep fighting. And the Islamic State territory just got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and the fight got denser and denser and denser. And then in the end of the book, it's described uh, the fighting in the old city, which it was a war and it was nightmarish for everyone involved. But Islamic State was just, they were not going to, to give up. You talk about how that's the culmination at the end of the book and you go back and you talk about the lead up to that and previous experience in Afghanistan and so on. And earlier you referred to Ian Turner and his mental health struggles. Looking at that at a macro level for, I guess, all the commandos, we're looking at a regiment that's been actively deployed to the Middle East for over a decade with a high intensity of rotations and ongoing deployments. And then there's this weird mix in the public eye, the war feels kind of over, yet they're still actually then finding themselves being deployed again on more active combat duty on the back of so many years of high intensity operations. They were all would have been under incredible strain. Yes, they were. One of the key figures in the book, though, sort of talks about the feeling about Operation Okra as something that was um, almost a reprieve at the end of Afghanistan. People were deflated. The Inspector General's report into war crimes was starting to spool up them in 2014. The guys were sort of wondering what they were going to do for the rest of their lives. If you'd been in um, high temple operations in Afghanistan, you didn't want to be a barrack soldier. There wasn't anything sort of looming on the horizon. One thing that's suggested in the book is that deployments were a tool that were being used to keep the guys focused and to sort of push down the levels of post-traumatic stress disorder and um, post-combat stress because everybody becomes incredibly focused as they get closer and closer to deployment. 
And so these Iraq deployments came up and then all of a sudden the guys started to feel useful and hopeful that they were going to be out there and doing their thing. One thing that's, that's suggested to me by a number of people is that for the gunfighters, you know, for guys like Ian Turner, the people who had been in the stacks, the guys who'd been in the gunfights in Afghanistan, Okra was not what they wanted to do. You know, it was a it was a war for the bears and for the intelligence guys. They weren't out there with the CTS getting in gunfights with Islamic State. It was incredibly stressful and kinetic for some of the guys and for some of the other guys, it was a little bit low tempo for them. Ian Turner is on the front cover of the book and I'll put that cover up on our social media feeds for everyone to see and then go find a copy in the bookstore. It would have been a very personal motivation having already known Ian and then what happens to him happens to him. How do you feel and his widow Joe feel about the story you've captured here in terms of exploring just not the actions undertaken, but the journey involved in that? I thought that that was something that was particularly important to do. I also, in every line, just thought about the respect that had to be given to the people who are involved in the story, which Ian himself, of course, his parents, his family, Joe, but then you also have an obligation to the truth as well. Stories about trauma are particularly difficult because they have dissonant elements. Ian was an incredible soldier. Ian was an incredibly brave guy. Ian was someone who would do anything for the guys in his team, but he was also someone who was sort of falling apart a little bit. And that wasn't something that he would have liked to have represented for most of his life. And then at the end, I think he recognized that you have to do something about it, but maybe he was just sort of a little bit too far, too far down the trail. It is something that's difficult to do, but I think the guiding light just has to be truth. And Joe, Ian's widow, the thing that I'm sort of most impressed by her is that she can embrace that dissonance. She still loves Ian, despite the fact that they had separated and that things had become acrimonious before Ian's passing. But she can hold both those ideas in her, in her head that, uh, you know, he was the person that they were having a really fractious relationship with, but then he's always someone that she loves as well. And I wanted that to be represented in the book, and I hope it is. Besides the bare bones of the actual personal stories and the wider story of the regiment you are telling here, what's the key takeaway you want readers to have from reading Mosul, Australia's secret war inside the ISIS caliphate? Well, there's a couple of things that I'd like for people to take away from it, but I guess one of the takeaways is one of the takeaways that I'd like to have in the commando as well, is that the people who do this work are affected by the work. And that has to be represented in our narrative understanding of Afghanistan and of Iraq. A lot of the reporting that's being done around Afghanistan at the moment seems to be either super sensorial, it suggests that, uh, you know, crimes were happening in a, you know, sort of left, right and centre in Afghanistan and the whole thing was a mess, or we never did anything wrong and we should be able to do whatever we want and, you know, there's just this sort of like, you know, normal Anzac Met reporting, whereas the truth is in the middle. The other truth of the matter is that I think the war was incredibly difficult for the guys on the ground. And you have to have a contextual understanding as to why they were doing what they were doing. And I just hope that, that we've brought some context to this story. That's sort of all that I want to do. You know, things are difficult, things are um, confusing, things are dissonant, and there's no pat answers. From what you say, Ben, it sounds like this book was born of really pure motive. You had a mission to fulfill with this, and it was started from a real personal story and then built out into a wider scope, to speak simply. But it's... I think impossible to publish a book in this kind of genre, in this kind of space, dealing in this time period without being aware of that wider context of Inspector General's impending report into alleged war crimes. Every military book published this year, next year, and so on is going to be read under that lens with that context, even if that context has no bearing on what the prompt was behind doing this book. 
What kind of insight do you want readers to get from this book that might speak to that wider understanding you're saying where the media reporting is often both sensationalized and oversimplified and then there is in fact a greater nuanced understanding to be found here regardless of what the findings may actually end up being well i think for a lot of the people who are following the news in that period you know from 2006 up to 2014 they would be forgiven for thinking that australia was was only sort of tangentially involved in the fighting in in afghanistan you know we would hear about it when an australian service person would die but outside of that, we wouldn't really hear about those kinds of operations that they were on, you know, except for when somebody was awarded Victoria Cross and, you know, there'd be a little bit of, of media. And I do think that uh, the Australian Defence Forces has potentially self-harmed a little bit in not giving people an understanding of what was happening in Afghanistan. I mean, one thing that hasn't popped up really in all the, any of the reporting about this war crimes investigation is the Joint Prioritised Effects List. You know, the guys that I've been talking to have been talking to me about the fact that if somebody was JPL Green, then they could basically be killed where they stand. And for our listeners, the JPL list is effectively a kill list, hit list. It is. It was something that was um, originated with the Americans. Um, and I think it was General Petraeus's idea. And we're talking high value individual targets from the beginning. We're talking key Al-Qaeda, Taliban individuals. You know. Yeah, bomb makers, people who are bringing arms into places like Oruzgan. There were missions done by the 2nd Commander Regiment and the SAS in Afghanistan that were JPL list missions and it was kill or capture. And if it was inconvenient to capture, then they would be killed. And I would imagine that if there are to be trials after this investigation, then some of the defense might be around this, this JPL list. But the fact that this is sort of a a crucial element in understanding what was happening in Afghanistan and the fact that this hasn't really been represented in any of the Fairfax or ABC reporting is disappointing. So I do hope that there are more books that give that understanding of the circumstances in which the Australian soldiers killed or were attacked or were in battles. And, you know, there's a little bit of that in, in this book. You obviously got to approach this book, as I touched on before, with that trust and credibility with the regiment having done your work with the commando and so on. But I imagine generally there's going to be a bit of hesitation for your average veteran speaking to a journalist because it was such an underreported era defense, not completely, but largely blocked embedding with the forces while we're on operations and so on. You couldn't give that clear picture to the Australian population. We didn't have Charles Bean walking through the trenches on the Western Front and so on with our soldiers. We didn't have that equivalent here at all, despite the great access we have technologically to have done an even better job with giving your average Aussie a great insight into what was going on. We are finding out retrospectively much more so. Yeah, that's true. That's disappointing. The special forces work in Iraq and Afghanistan. In Iraq, it was a huge part of what was being done against the Islamic State. In Afghanistan, it was it was a large part of Operation Slipper. I mean, I think Chris Masters might have been embedded with the uh, with the special forces once. Yes, and that culminated in his book No Frontline. Yeah, and uh, the, the tour of duty uh, show that he did for Channel Ten. But given the amount of time that we're in Afghanistan and then Iraq, and that that was basically all of the reporting that was done, then that is disappointing. So everything is done retrospectively. One of the things that motivated me in this book was that some of the people who were talking to me, they were talking to me because they felt that they had an obligation to history. This is a good news story for Australian Special Operations Command. The territorial caliphate was destroyed. They worked with a partner force. They did build up the CTS who became the spearhead for the Iraqi Federalized Army. These are good things that happened, and that's why these guys wanted to tell their story. I think that's a great point to finish on, that it's not just giving an insight into periods of service where we might lack a bit of understanding and insight. It's a good news story at the end of the day. 
My copy only reached me in the post late afternoon yesterday, so I've not managed to finish reading it yet, but this conversation's got me really excited, Ben, just to dive into the book. So thank you for writing it. I think it's really important work and thank you for your time today. Awesome. Thanks, Alex. Ben McKelvey's new book, Mosul, is out now in print, ebook, and audiobook, and you can still get a copy of The Commando. For more about The Late Cameron Baird and Ben McKelvey's book, jump back to season two and listen to the bonus episode, The Commando's Father with Doug Baird. So the doorbell rang that particular night. Kay answered the door and there was three soldiers there uh, with their hats in their hand and she knew just like I did that uh, he'd been killed. And for more on the Battle of Mosul, hear the general who was in command of Australian forces in the Middle East at the time tell his story. That was in this year's bonus episode, COVID-19 Task Force with John Fruin. Massive rubbleized areas, ancient, narrow laneways and streets, the full weight of modern air power being brought to bear. It was warfare at some of its most brutal and complicated. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest we forget.